John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed entry 104.EZ2047, certificate number 31303, The Battle of Palmdale. You're a fan of war movies, I'm assuming. I don't have a weekly podcast mm-hmm. where I watch flying leathernecks with a bunch <laughs> of middle-aged guys. So in this room, I'm the least into war movies. Right. But I do enjoy a good war movie. I should say that my war movie podcast, Friendly Fire, does not feature a bunch of middle-aged guys. I am the middle-aged guy. And then there's a, there's a younger... They, a, they are youthful compared to us. Yeah. There's like a generation Y guy. And then there's a millennium is the youngest guy, a 30 year old. We need somebody in there to, to, uh, to comment on every war movie that it's problematic. You don't have a baby boomer. No, there's no baby boomer. And in fact, one of the guy's wives, one of the other guys, his wife like, is a baby boomer. No, she said, <laughs> she said at one point, aren't you the baby boomer <laughs> further infuriating me because of generation X erasure. Cause you're five years, you're what? Five years away from being a boomer. And to no. you, that's a huge gulf. No, I'm 10 years away from being a boomer. There's no, no... when does a baby boom end? We've talked about this before. Yeah. The, the, the last possible case you could make, I think is 1960. If you were born in 1961, how can you possibly be a baby boomer? Okay. You know what I mean? I mean, John Flansburg from they might be giants was born in 1960 and he's not a baby boomer for the love of, I mean, Obama, I like like how that's your benchmark. (laughs) Obama's not a baby boomer. He was born in 60 or 61. He's not a boomer. Come on. We have a lot of baby boomer listeners, and I don't mean to disparage them any more than I normally do. The U.S. Census Bureau has the baby boom going to 64. You're, yeah, but you're that's only, wrong. You're only five years off. That's so wrong. I mean, uh, who, someone, are you, who are you to challenge the, the uh, U.S. Census Bureau on the basis of John Flansburg's birthday? Me. So, well, just, just, I mean, a baby boomer, I think the year 1968 is crucial to baby boomer culture. 1968 is when the boomer generation had its Big, that was the, the, the big celebration, the coming out party. Assassinations are the big coming out party for the no, boomers? No, the summer of love, the, oh, okay. you know, like, you know, if you Vietnam, the whole kit and caboodle. If you were born in 64, you're four years old. And really enjoying it. You're, you're, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> Dad's trying to switch over from Star Trek to watch the news. And you're like, no. If you're born in 64, the de- the de- definitive moment for you, right, is going to be like the late 70s disco punk schism. You're going to be, what, 16 years old in 1980. Well, guess what? I will be the baby boomer who comes on Friendly Fire and, you know, Talks about Hellcats of the Navy or whatever. That'll be my thing. You're going to be the boomer. Yeah. You're less of a boomer than me. But I'll do a hilarious uh, kind of John Mulaney uh, old person <laughs> character. <laughs> I think that the I think that a lot of what defines the baby boomer generation is the the first what I think of as the first half of the Cold War. Right. We've talked a lot about how Generation X and I've maybe not on the show, but we've talked offline about how Generation X is kind of defined by. Cold War 
anxiety. Yes. Um, I think we talk about this on about every omnibus. So <laughs> we've, we've covered this. But we've the, talked about the day after more than the people who made the day after. That's true. That's true. More than the newspapers talked about it at the time. Well, we've probably thought about it more than they did. They moved on to something else and we were still bedwetting. Still. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> still eyeing the cans of spam in our parents' larder going like, please don't ever make me eat that spam. That's exactly right. Uh, but, but our Cold War was a you know a late 70s 80s cold war there was not a vietnam era but there was a 50s 60s cold war that was just as as um i think uh, paranoid and and uh, and also maybe even more uh the expectation was that there was an inevitability to it that's the hipster cold war they were into the cold war before it was cool that's right they well they had all the great film strips and little <laughs> right. animated uh, uh, shorts of people trying to duck and cover we didn't have cute turtles <laughs> well we did we just had to watch theirs right <laughs> I and mean, that's the terrible thing about generation x and why i guess maybe why we're so mistaken for boomers is that we just had we had their terrible culture that it was in reruns. The most upsetting scene in the day after, to my mind, is where um, Tucker the turtle, you, you see him ducking and covering, and then he just dies instead. <laughs> there's, there's a little animated interlude where the turtle is just killed immediately. <laughs> well, you know, I love the Cold War. It was the, oh, who doesn't? It was the time. It was the time that you know I was. It was a very formative time for me. I I uh, I had every one of those aircraft identification books mm. uh, where where they would give little silhouettes of different airplane profiles so that you, you know, and the idea being that you would be a spotter for the Air Force or civilian spotter that was like, I saw two F-89 Grumman Hellcats. Well, you were in Alaska. You'd see them coming over the dew line or whatever, right? Right. You could be our first eyes on the scene. Right. Did you ever save the nation? I didn't. <clears throat> the F-89 wasn't a Hellcat, by the way. But uh, no, I was in the Civil Air Patrol, however, mm. uh, and it, uh, as a as a preteen even and as a teen, certainly was a cadet in the Civil Air Patrol with the with the idea that the the Civil Air Patrol, and and I intend very much to do an episode of Omnibus on the Civil Air Patrol exclusively, but it was a civilian auxiliary of the Air Force, still is, and it does a lot of stuff that the Air Force kind of doesn't have time to do, like shadowy stuff. Like, uh, do you, no, a lot are, of are you killing people? A lot of search and rescue stuff, mm -hmm. right? I mean, every time a little airplane goes down, somebody calls the Air Force, and they're like, "Look, man, we're busy." Uh, the, the They've got a number. We've got of, other of some stuff. old guy in a hangar. <laughs> yeah, so they they call the Civil Air Patrol, and the, and the, the Civil Air Patrol does. They that. wake up an old guy in a hangar. But during the that's right, a guy with a greasy, like an oil stained baseball cap <laughs> right. with the brim turned. He's up. like Indiana Jones's mechanic. <laughs> Wipes his hand off on a wrench and you, fires up the biplane. I think it's funny that you and I kind of feel like we're the same age, but you were a member of the Civilian Air Patrol, and I was a member of you know the Star Wars fan club. Right, there's a vast gulf. And, and I think I did, I mean, I, whew, remembering, yeah, we, we believed that during an armed conflict with the Soviet Union, I would, <laughs> I would be pressed into service, perhaps in the capacity of just, you know, being in charge of my junior high, but, uh, <laughs> you didn't want to be writing the bomb. Oh, down no, not writing Siberia. the bomb. No, no. I, I, I. I hoped I hoped to be one of the few that were saved. You just wanted to be a marshal of some kind. <laughs> That's right. I'm hoping to be, and it's a good goal. Like yeah. you, all, if there's anything going on, you want to be a marshal. It doesn't matter whether it's a parade or martial law. If, I you, do. if you have the choice between being a marshal and a non-marshal, right? One should always be a marshal. In the case of martial law, I would definitely like to be a marshal. Absolutely. I've always said that you'll one get of all the, the spam after I after I ran for the uh, Seattle City Council and lost. I realized that my political career probably. I'd, I'd, I'd imagined a lifetime in politics and uh, th throughout my young life and then realizing that I didn't really want to be in politics but still wanted to perform a, my civic duty and be in some cases, in, in some way, in a martial capacity. I realized what I needed to do was run for marshal of, a, of some small western town. You want a tin star. I do. So I was like, maybe I should, maybe if I were the sheriff of Twisp. Or some other. I've, I've been I've been toying with this idea for several years now. I think I'd be a good small town marshal. Yeah, you need to be kind of the uh, the kind of the surprisingly gentle marshal that just yeah. takes everybody's guns when they ride into town. Yeah, you're like you're Wyatt Earp. You're like you need to 
Well, then that, come by the office. That Stranger Things TV show came out, and I and I got a lot of letters saying, "Well, they're doing a show with you as the marshal." <laughs> you do have that guy does have a very strong John Roderick energy, right? He does. In fact, I think there was a thread online, uh, you know, one of these uh, fanfic uh, impulses that people have that pitted me against the Stranger Things marshal with like the question bare knuckles boxing. Yeah, like which who would win? Who would win in a fight? And the, and the consensus was that he would win. Yeah, he would win. And that I, that, that I, even though I don't contest that, I I was uh, I was offended. This reminds me of something that happened to us yesterday, which is I sent you a screenshot from a Jeopardy chat group in which uh, they were discussing who could rattle off a just a record breaking Jeopardy streak, and somebody said, you know, maybe John Roderick from Omnibus, uh, you know, friend of Ken's, he uh, maybe he wouldn't be like a. James Holtzauer record breaker, but he would still be a TOC player. And you immediately text back, what's TOC? And I said, well, that's the tournament of champions. And you, and you said, well, I'm very mad that they think I'm, would you be just, just be a tournament of champions player and not a record breaker? You were so angry that your name had been mooted for something you, you may even not be eligible for. And somebody just said, he might be top 10, but... And that's the same with uh, yeah. the Stranger Things. Yeah, you want I mean, to beat up all those characters. I agree that I agree that I could not probably become one of the great Jeopardy champions of all time. But I'm mad that the people on the internet think so. How dare they say so? <laughs> that seems impolite. You and the Stranger Things Marshal should just uh, join forces. I think. He's Why a, are you enemies? You guys should be beating up Matthew Modine. It's true. It's true. We should be. We should be working together. He's a, he's thicker than I am. I think. I think he's broader. Across the beam. And that's, that's that's what people are betting on. Yeah, that's why people see him. But I'm not sure. And I think he may be tall also. I bet but he's tall. We're both gentle giants. Let's just put it that way. You you two would never have a reason to fight. You would join that's you right. would join forces. There would be no jurisdictional disputes between Twisp and uh Stranger Things is of course set in Stranger Thing, Indiana. <laughs> and so you guys you guys would uh respect each other's jurisdictions and uh, and fight crime. I feel like I would I would ha- I would wear my uniform better. Let's just put it that way. That's probably true. This uh, episode of Omnibus, however, is not about <laughs> has little to do with any. Of that. You have to go back all the way back and tie in war movies. Well, what's what's a bummer to me is that I gave away some of my best Civil Air Patrol material, and now I'm going to have to wait for a year, and then there are going to be a bunch of people that say he already said that. <laughs> um, in in being a in being kind of a war fanboy. Ever, we all love a good war. Cold, Cold War fanboy. I became pretty well versed at a young age in like all the different kinds of airplanes. And because my dad was a World War II pilot, um, my father was the greatest generation and those were the parents of baby boomers. So even though he had me late in life and I am very decidedly not a boomer, I do have boomer adjacency. If he were here today, <clears throat> he might think of you as very boomer-like. Well, because I have older brothers and sisters who are baby boomers, yeah. but they're 20 years older than me. You're like the baby baby boomer. I'm the baby. I'm no. Yes. You no. showed up at the doorstep like Sweepy. I'm the, I could have been a baby of a baby boomer, <laughs> but, uh, but I did, I did associate World War II with my dad. So, well, he was in it, right? So, with, so yeah, with reason. I felt like. I was only one kiss away from that conflict and from um, from uh, the, the, the fan culture around all the armament and, and, um, and uniforms and culture of World War II. And if you're going to be a fan of a war, World War II is a oh, pretty good one. It's really the best one. But I noticed among my dad and his cronies who used to sit around the living room and talk about their experiences in the war – uh, after the war, they didn't continue to be interested in the military necessarily. You know, they they reintegrated into civilian life, and they didn't make uh, in the same way that they didn't make the transition between big band jazz and modern jazz. <laughs> they didn't make the transition between being interested in the military as it existed during World War II and as it brought you know as it saved the world, made the world safe for democracy. 
which is how they thought of it. Well, yeah, think of it. You just do something very intensely for two or three years in your early 20s. Right. You're not, that's not going to be your hobby for the rest of your life. Well, no, but it also sets in stone kind of how you think about yeah. the, what the military is and how it works. And that, that was why Vietnam was so uh, confounding for a lot of those guys, because they weren't used to being critical of the military. They didn't think of it that way. But there was a tremendous switch in what the military was, how it worked, what the technology was as we moved in that immediate post-war era to what became the jet age. We were uh, we transitioned right at the end of the war into a completely new universe as a result of technologies that were developed during the war. Five years after World War II was over, there were no more – I mean, we were using uh, – all jet airplanes, there was um, the threat of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Sure, there's nukes. We were working on their nu- nuclear warheads. We were working on satellites. You know, things were being launched into space. I mean, it was a, it was a universe apart. And the threats were, uh, were like incomprehensible relative to a 1945 conception of- These people just the cannot world. handle existential- I mean, how do, how do we think about it today? Well, and and at the time, the technologies developing so fast, a lot of them were um, took war fighting out of the realm of uh, of a thing that you could do with human reaction times in a way, right? If you're if you're in a propeller airplane and you're chasing another propeller airplane. With a gun. It's a big if, but okay. <laughs> I'll try it to, still could I'll, happen. I'll try to picture it. Still could happen. We could go down to Boeing Field right now and say, all right, what if we... I just want to make sure I have one of the guns that doesn't shoot out the propeller. Like it right. knows to miss the propeller as it passes. That, they figured that out pretty uh, early. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, one way to do it is put the, put the machine guns out on the wings. I guess that's true. Right. But another way, they had this they inter- had the thing that intermittent it, right? thing. Yeah. Um, but... So so your idea of dogfighting in a situation like that, I mean, a propeller aircraft can go several hundred miles an hour, but still, if the plane in front of you turns and you turn, it, your, your eyes, your, your reflexes can, can handle things in, in real time. I mean, things are happening fast, but you're trying to shoot another airplane down with bullets. And so a bullet can, a bullet has limitations. It, it fires and it's not, it's not guided in any way, right? It just kind of goes straight, and if the wind is blowing, it can blow the bullet. But but that's all uh, that's all taken as a given when you're in a dogfight. And over the next fifty years or more, that gradually gets replaced by magic, which is what we have today, right? Right, a screen and a button and a and a target. Yeah, right. A, and and an airplane over the horizon that you can't see right. and uh, missiles and things that have their own minds and their own imaginations that play games with one another that that have false memories of knowing how to play the piano that have Professor Falcon. Yeah. Uh as that transition was made to jet aircraft that were firing missiles that would move faster than human reaction times. Things were happening, I mean, uh, uh, jet fighters very quickly realized that to get in close enough to use a gun against one another, I mean, you would be at that point very uncomfortably close <laughs> to another thing <laughs> moving 700 miles That's a an hour. Top gun MIG scenario. Yeah. And actually for a while, uh, the, the, uh, the air force took guns off of airplanes and, uh, and went to a strictly missile based, uh, style of air to air combat. The pilot would have to pull out a handgun. <laughs> open his cockpit <laughs> and, and and that and that worked against us for a while because uh there were there were lots of instances where you know you'd fire all your missiles and then fire all your guns and the british kept coming what are you then what yeah, are you right exactly you, you're you just no missiles. get out of there is what you are uh but what was hard uh for people i guess to grok was that these new technologies were um, extremely imperfect and to this day to this day not every not every you know tragic wedding drone strike is a good idea you know like we're, we are still screwing this stuff up 
we we are still screwing our, this stuff up, and we we uh, just to use your example, there there are plenty of instances where someone from a drone, uh, someone you know, some drone pilot over the desert, um, is given the command to fire a missile, and it turns out right at the end, some child runs out and they realize, oh my goodness, it was a it was a wedding, not a meeting of Al Qaeda. But and no, there's nothing the pilot can do. Nothing the pilot can do. Uh, well, I mean, you can detonate those missiles before, you know, at a certain point, you can push mm-hmm. a button or whatever they self-detonate. But, but that's a failure of intelligence. It's a failure of surveillance. It's not uh, uh, those those drone missile strikes aren't a failure of the missile, um, right? But there are lots and lots of just straight up. Failures of the weapons and and in the way that they're depicted in movies and the way we think of missiles. I mean, when Tom Cruise fires a missile, they, it does show situations where the missile kind of, you know, misses, right? Typically, that's when our hero is uh, deploying some kind of countermeasures or some super daredevil seat of his pants flying. Right. Our hero can make the missiles miss. The The bad guys, the commies can never do that. Yeah. And every once in a while, uh, one of the one of the good guys, you know, Iceman or whatever, fires a missile that misses. But it's only for dramatic purposes to let Tom Cruise come in and save the day with mm-hmm. his like uncanny Eerie, eerily powerful and and and, uh, and Scientology powered uh, <laughs> missiles. Right? If only if only Iceman had been uh, operating Thetan level six. <laughs> Remember, if you say uh, if you say the word Scientology on the internet, that the, there are algorithms that will find that and target you personally. But they're not so. listening to podcasts. Oh, are they not? Are they? Well, oh, now I'm in trouble. Maybe Mark can go out and take out the place where I said Scientology <laughs> and put in the words. A lemonade stand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bubble just, later. Just say Unitarians. Tom Cruise, as we all know, is a, is a insane Unitarian. <laughs> when it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout in the early days of developing this technology like the first rockets that were fired from airplanes were Unguided, they were basically rocket-powered bullets. Line of sight thing, you point yeah. and shoot, and um, they were pretty effective if you were going to aim your plane at the ground. If there were tanks and people running around, and you had your, you know, your fighter bomber, and you could point the nose at where you wanted the rockets to go, mm-hmm. and then fire a bunch of them all at once. This was the technology. You know. <laughs> Target rich environment. Yeah, just like you, I just shot a hundred missiles and let's get out of here. Uh, and it was pretty effective because people on the ground can't can't move away that fast. And there's but, a big radius of what you blow up, right? If right. you shoot a rocket at a, a planet, yeah, you're meant to. <clears throat> they were meant to just kind of carpet a, yeah. a certain area, and I, and a little salvo of of unguided rockets can sort of devastate a football field sized area um which is you know typically you get 50 people standing around i mean that's a uh they wouldn't occupy an area greater than a football field they wouldn't be a group of people at that point they'd be 50 random people standing in and that and to you the bright line is a football field (laughs) yeah football field if an army can no longer fit in a football field (laughs) come on but as an air-to-air weapon an unguided rocket is extremely ineffective uh, because the other person, as you as you uh, 
as you described earlier, the other the the bad guy, let's say the commie, uh, they can turn their aircraft. They're probably moving too. Yes. If, if they're not moving, how are they even up there? That's right. They're not. They're not hovering. They're also moving. They're, and they're not going to move in conjunction with you. They're, you're the enemy. And if why you, should they do what you're doing? If you fire a rocket powered bullet, uh, they will almost certainly try to turn away. I, I sure would. But and the, I'm not a crafty commie. The idea of <clears throat> of these uh, salvos of rockets. Uh, the idea was that it, they weren't very good as like a fighter plane weapon. They were meant to intercept bombers, slow-moving bombers. So a bomber, during this period, a strategic bomber, a bomber, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles were still, and we're talking about the mid-50s, they were still an un... I mean, not untested, entirely untested, but it wasn't really clear that you could fire an ICBM from Kansas and be sure that it reached its target in... uh, Vladivostok in uh, Slobovistan. So it's more or less like using the U.S. Post Office. E, well, it, oof, it, it might get better. Ouch, ouch! That's a gut punch. Our, uh so so the idea was if everybody pictured that if nuclear warheads were going to be flying, they were going to be flying from squadrons of bombers that were just always aloft. It right? was it was definitely part of the the sort of strategic uh, um, puzzle that you would have. Multiple platforms to deliver uh, you gotta, nuclear weapons. You've really got to diversify your portfolio. You do. And submarines were a big part of that. They could get in close and be undetected. Uh, bombers were um, were detectable by radar, but you could have them airborne all the time and kind of flying around the polar space, like uh, ready to ready to. Penetrate. I mean, this is the the uh, the whole plot of the movie War Games. Um, there, the bomber or Doctor Strange Love, right, right? They're waiting there, kind of poised right outside of of the airspace of your of your enemy. And the Russians or the Soviets used uh, strategic bombers as a as a major component of kind of the way that they threatened the United States. And so, our early interceptors were were uh, populated with these sort of rocket launching pads. And the idea was that they could, that a bomber couldn't really evade them quite like a jet fighter could. And they could hit, hit a bomber with a big cluster of little unguided rockets and generally be assured that they could, you know, that the rockets would, would perform their job. It's SDI. It's star Wars. It's that's right. You can stop the nukes. (laughs) You can hit the bomber, except, you know, it's, it's, it's not Star Wars as much as it's a, it's Buck Rogers, it's, right? Yeah, it's, it's steampunk, like, steampunk yeah. SDA. Light a Roman candle and shoot them down. Um, so by the mid fifties, a lot of these platforms that we think of, we kind of assume that that rockets and guided rockets and strategic rockets were all technologies that uh, where where they'd become fairly reliable. By a certain point in time, I mean, we we uh, it wasn't much longer that we developed a rocket that could that could put men on the moon. Right, I was just about to say we started putting we, we were so common we started putting guys at the top of them. Yeah, we started to put our our best most clean cut square jawed guys just sitting on one of these things. That's how confident we were, and we hardly killed any of them. <laughs> but but we did. There were a lot, you've seen the videos of the failed NASA rocket tests, right? Yeah. The, you know, it's pretty great. Saturn one through four were not quite as good as Saturn five. That's the that's the best part of the right Saturn, stuff. Saturn zero point seven beta. Because all these guys with crew cuts and sunglasses watching these rockets explode. Because a lot of them look good for a second, <laughs> and then it's literally like fifty feet. <laughs> but the the um, it's extremely hard to shoot another airplane down from an airplane. Um, I've never done it. I've never done it either. And uh, and if you and I, I can't know, get right? This done. We're two pretty remarkably uh, smart, well versed guys. We are can do Americans. We are, and we have a, we have a thumbnail sketch of physics and and aerodynamics. I would lick my finger and stick it out a couple uh-huh. times just uh-huh. to make sure the shot was 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 good. I've used uh, the little uh, testes uh, rocket motors to not only send model rockets into the air but also. 
Did you say testes? Yeah, well, what, how do you, how would you pronounce it? You, I always wondered about that. You put rocket motors on your testes? No, the the, the rocket motor manufacturer. Oh, it's like a hobby shop thing. Yeah, uh, I never had that blow blow stuff up phase as a kid. What really? Like, we never even played with fireworks once Washington banned. Oh the wait, and no, it's ones. not testes. It's Estes. <laughs> that's gonna be that's gonna be a very i just saved you from a very awkward mix-up ouch i mean it's a little embarrassing that future <laughs> generations know that you don't know oh no you know what it is it's that the that test stores is it test stores was uh the the glue yes so oh. test stores was the paint and glue that you use to build model airplanes and estes was the rocket so i conflated and two. if you ever combine the two if you put your testors on your Estes, yeah, that's you're right. just left holding your testes. That's right. Hey, wait a minute. You get your chocolate in my peanut butter. <laughs> Did you never blow things up? I hardly ever blew things up. Wow. I had friends that blew things up, and I kind of looked down on them. It's probably a classist thing again. Yeah. I was a pyro. I feel bad. At a certain point in high school, we realized that, and this is terrible. Uh, I'm, I'm saying this for informational purposes only. This is not a suggestion. Has the statue of limitations expired? The statue? Yes, it has. Uh, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not admitting any crimes, but we, we started to try and we, we were fascinated by pipe bombs. We wanted to perfect pipe bombs. I like how you can say I'm a mad bomber, but if you say you're fascinated with it, oh, no, no. Do, oh, you're a man of science. Do no, no, go no, we on. were fascinated by Share it. your scientific fascination with the pipe bomb. And we realized that you could use the little solar igniters that we used in rocket, uh, model rocketry. We could use those as basically the blasting caps that would set off. Uh, black powder based pipe bombs. So my, my fascination in model rocketry continued all the way into high school. Although it was, we were using it for, for uh, very different applications. Anyway, forget everything I just said. That's some, that's some anarchist cookbook stuff. The state of Alaska has no interest in that. I'm sure. <laughs> anyway, I certainly as a, as a air force fanboy. I've always imagined that the, that all this technology, uh, air-to-air weapons, were more reliable than they actually were. And like, sort of famously, the 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 most um, the, there are two air-to-air missile types that were that were, or t- two, I guess, yeah, air-to-air missiles that were used universally in American jet fighter combat and uh, and we sold these missiles to our arms partners around the world there was the sidewinder missile which was a short range uh, air to air combat missile that was a heat seeker so the sidewinder would uh, would get us the heat signature of the rocket ex- or the I'm sorry not rocket the jet engine exhaust of your enemy aircraft and it would zoom in on the uh, on the exhaust, let's say no aiming necessary. It just had a little. It'll it'll change in flight to follow the. Yeah, it'll just follow the the hottest point, um, but only really good for very short ranges. You could fire a a, a sidewinder and it would just sidewind right off into. Hence the name ineffectuality. <laughs> if you didn't get that air, air, airplane pretty fast, uh, and then the companion to the sidewinder was the Aim Seven Sparrow. Which was Sparrow's a terrible name for a missile. Well, and and, and the AIM seven Sparrow was a, arguably a terrible missile. Well, is that why they chose it? Like this no, missile is? I don't think so. This missile can do no harm to anyone. What's a what's a nice harmless animal? Right, like a sidewinder. That's a nickname for a rattlesnake. Sure, that's a snake that can bite you. But uh, but a, a Sparrow, yeah, Sparrows, you're you're delighted, but they're ineffectual. You don't even notice them. And a Sparrow missile could go further. It was a it was a medium range missile. But it required it was radar targeted, and it required that the pilot of the airplane continue to f- point his airplane at the enemy airplane, keeping his radar locked. And then the his radar was communicating with the sparrow. with the sparrow, and the sparrow would follow the radar lock to its target. Um, but that is that doesn't. That's not something that a pilot can continue to do in the midst of a real hot uh, air-to-air combat situation. And I think a, the statistics on how accurate sparrows were, I mean, what their actual sort of kill ratio was, 
It's equivalent to real sparrows? Like pretty bad, right? It would, I mean, better than like rubber bands, but <laughs> like not quite as good as uh, just 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 accident i think i think more pilots more enemy pilots just crashed because they didn't get their landing gear down in time then were killed by sparrows i'm sure there's somebody listening to the show that worked on the aim seven sparrow that's going to send us a really angry email yeah well it might not be an angry email if you're going to anger someone it should not be a former weapons contractor right somebody that has he's still got a garage full of (laughs) still got a garage full of shady stuff He's going to send us a letter uh, written in chalk on the side of an AM7 Sparrow. <laughs> uh, just send your letters to Ken Jennings at... Ken Jennings Hates America at... HowStuffWorks.com. So the Sidewinder works. The Sparrow doesn't. Well, yeah. I mean, all, all missiles are, are unreliable to a, to a certain extent. I mean, the Sidewinder works, works for what it does. Do you have a particular example of the unreliability of any of these missiles, John? Uh, just the just the statistics of how many were fired in combat versus how many uh, actually brought down planes. Pretty, pretty you know, if if, the, if that was your success rate in parenting, you would, your kids would have been taken away. Also, you know, you never think about the, the price of the missile, you know. They're expensive too. Like yeah. when my kid throws away her retainer, the first thing I think is, oh my gosh, how much was that retainer? Well, I think you do as a fighter pilot think of the cost of using a missile because you're not carrying that many of them. And so if you use one, it's ta- an opportunity cost. I'm a taxpayer. I don't care about that guy. I just want to hear, wait, wait, $60 million for that uh, missile that you just accidentally fired? Well, in fact, during this period, there was another kind of missile used in air-to-air combat, which was called the uh, the Air 2 Genie. And the Genie here, you're going to love this. Seems like a, it's like a kitchen cleaning technology. Genie doesn't seem like a name for a weapon. Well, the Genie was a nuclear-tipped air-to-air missile. The idea being that it was so hard to hit other airplanes that if you just put a nuke on the tip and fired it at a group of airplanes. You'll probably get them. You'll get them. And uh, the only challenge was, like, can you fire this missile and get away from it fast enough that it doesn't also shoot yourself down? Well, hopefully there were rules of engagement that would have... I mean, you don't want pilots just shooting nuclear-tipped missiles at planes. Oh, do you not? Well, well you're seemed, not in the Air Force. There are a few <laughs> things that could go wrong in that scenario. I'm, I'm just a layperson, but... Yeah, and, a, and and the safety measures in a lot of these missiles are that they don't arm until a certain point, They and if they don't detonate within a certain time frame, then they disarm. But all of those things are not 100% reliable technologies. The, uh, the, the genie was in use in the Air Force for a lot longer than you would think, given... (laughs) Well, the fact that I never heard about this means it probably didn't get fired much. At one point, well, no, it was only ever fired, I think, one time. We never actually irradiated Turkey or Siberia. But during the testing of the the Genie, there uh, there was a group of Air Force officers who volunteered to go stand out on the firing range... And take their hats off and have this uh, genie fired over their heads at 20,000 feet and detonate to demonstrate that the nuclear explosion would not hurt people on the ground. Even if they weren't wearing a fedora. Even when they take their little Air Force, you know, uh, like volley hat off. They weren't even where even the, the Jewish officers took off their yarmulkes. Oh, there were no Jewish officers. <laughs> um, probably not in the Air Force. They're all born again Christians. Uh, and they and they did this. These officers stood out there and and a, and a nuke went off over their heads and they measured the rads and no one there was you know not a measurable there was no measurable damage. That's not a test I would have. I, I don't have that much confidence. Is that true in general of like atmospheric nuclear detonations? Fallout doesn't get to the ground? I think, I wouldn't bank on that. I think depending on the size. And these were these air-to-air missiles had, you know, one kiloton loads or something. They weren't like the mega – they weren't like czar bombas or anything. Costco-sized nukes. Yeah. Um, but the process of testing these missiles, of course, is – is complicated because you're even though Air Force officers are willing to stand out and uh, have nukes blown up over their heads, they're not willing to get in an airplane and fly while their friend 
actually tries to shoot them down with an air-to-air missile. And, uh, and I think for obvious reasons, because they would die. Uh, and so drones were were used by both the Air Force and the Navy as platforms to try and test the efficacy of this kind of stuff. And we, we've always used drones, but drones not as um, – not like we use them now, which are which are piloted, basically piloted jets. It's just the pilot is sitting somewhere else. Um, drones were were obsolete aircraft that were fitted with kind of remote control, almost like a model airplane. So there was some there was kid, kid with a little joystick. There somewhere? was somebody, you know, a pilot that had a they radio. Didn't, they didn't transmitter. just go in a straight line. It's not like skeet. No, no, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wind them up set them free uh and so during this early era of of uh of missile testing ground to air missiles and air to air missiles the the navy and the air force used old world war ii surplus aircraft <laughs> that because at the end of world war ii right we had we'd manufactured so many battleships and so many airplanes and tanks and you know what were we supposed to do with all that stuff you should have rented some of it it turns out i mean one of the tragedies of that post-war era is that they all that stuff was just destroyed on mass so much so that now there are there are only a handful of extant examples of some of the you know the great airplanes and 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 ships of of all of human time right i mean I have to say that's not a problem I've noticed. I feel like I've had to go to many, many old aircraft museums in my my life. And it (laughs) it seems like there's plenty of them. They're all all painted with some kind of snarling animal face on the nose or or a a swimsuit lady. Even ones that weren't, that never had that at the time. Yeah, I I, I was painting that. I I was asked to leave. A lot of the, oh, that's right. It was just a a regular airplane and you were there with your- I'm just painting naked women on everything in this museum. And uh, yeah, they don't, the the volunteers don't like that. You had your little testors uh, paint kit. You you can outrun a lot of those guys though, it turns out. (laughs) Well, a lot of those airplanes were were, uh, ones that never left the United States or ones that were manufactured after the war ended. You know what, uh, like airplanes and boats that were- in the Philippines were often just sort of burned or buried where they, where they stood. Well, the, the PT boat made famous by John F. Kennedy. Um, most of those boats were beached and set on fire at the end of the war. There Mm -hmm. are hardly any, any that remain. But one of the things that the air force did was keep a selection of those airplanes to wind them up and set them loose and shoot them down. And, uh, one of the ones that they used for this task was, and I, and I kind of gave the, uh, I gave this away in a, uh, earlier in the episode, uh, was the Grumman F6F, which was a e- extremely successful Navy airplane during the war. Uh, it was a carrier-based plane that, uh, that did a lot of shooting down of Japanese Zeros. And at the end of the war, we had a bunch of them, and some of them were used in this drone program to um, to provide targets for this kind of testing, and in the mid fifties, this was the this was the Hellcat, um, the F six F. Hellcats of the Navy. The Hellcats of the Navy. This is That's the right. movie I want uh, us to do on our new uh, war podcast where we do unpopular war movies. Yeah, where I talk where uh, un- I, unfriendly fire. I, t- I talk about them and you go, huh? <laughs> Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash 
slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. In 1956, uh, in California, there were a lot of old military bases that were still being used for these purposes. Um, Fighting the Russians in by proxy from California, and on uh, that's right. And on August in August on August sixteenth of nineteen fifty six, uh, there was an event that has gone down in history, uh, popularly known as the Battle of Palmdale. And it what it didn't go down in history is the interesting thing. It is not popularly known as the Battle of Palmdale. It was largely forgotten and only only rediscovered and and resurrected as a as a a focal point of interest in the 2000s. I, I had never heard of it before today. Spoilers. So let me let me uh sketch out what happened on that fateful day. The Navy launched launched uh, an F6F as a drone out over the Pacific Ocean to use as a target for some missile tests. Are other planes are supposed to come or are they, are they surface to air? Uh, my sense is on that day that it was a surface to air test mm-hmm. and the Navy, the Navy was going to fly this out into a gun range that was over, uh, over the Pacific ocean. So there was a, there was a military base, uh, called point Magoo, which is <laughs> kind of a, but not, it's Magoo. It's M A G U. Not like, oh, it's not, not like, like Mr. the blind. It's not like Mr. Mag- Cause that's not a good name character. for a marksmanship, uh, <laughs> oh. exercise. Operation Magoo, sir, is, uh, on the clock. <laughs> uh, and point Magoo is kind of in Ventura County, uh, north of Los Angeles and south of Santa Barbara. Uh-huh. It was the airport. Point Magoo was the airport that was closest to Ronald Reagan's Santa Barbara ranch. So it was the one. If if anyone's Air, heard Air of it, one still. yeah, Air Force One would take him there, and and uh, if he was going to his ranch to like cut down his neighbor's trees or whatever it was that he did up there in Santa Barbara. Um, and but Point Magoo for you know for a lot of the second half of the twentieth century was used as a Navy gun range, and they had land up upland that they could use to test missiles where the missiles wouldn't presumably like hurt anybody, and it also went out to the sea. So on this day, August 16th, they launched this F6F remotely piloted. They had a little guy on the ground with a radio and inside the airplane was a radio. And, and you can only imagine the complex little system of. I'm imagining a robot. There's a robot sitting in the cockpit and the uh, remote control actually works the robot. So he pulls the stick. I think it was some wires and some broomsticks. Maybe <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's the thing that Ferris Bueller uses to seem like he's snoring exactly in bed. Exactly what it was, gotcha. right? Pulleys and uh, a series of tubes. But very shortly after takeoff, because of some malfunction, I mean, this isn't like a, a, a foolproof system. They lose contact with the airplane. The, uh, the, the guy on the ground can no longer, and it's either the radio on the ground or the radio in the plane. Something stopped working. Either way, it's they cannot no longer control this. It's just going to keep going in a straight line. There it goes. Until it runs out of fuel. Um, you would think it would keep going in a straight line, but in fact, the plane started to... I mean, an airplane wants to fly. It's the amazing thing about an airplane. Once it's in the air, a lot of times they advise you if, you, if an airplane kind of goes out of control... Um, one of the first things you try is just take your hands and feet off of the controls and the airplane will naturally stabilize unless it's in some situation like a flat spin or, I mean, you can, an airplane can go out of control where it won't recover, mm-hmm. but in a lot of cases, if, if you're in a dive or, or whatever, I mean, you can just take your hands off and the plane will naturally assume a kind of l- stable level flight. Does this only work for cute planes where the uh, the cockpit windows have eyeballs on them yeah. and the nose is a propeller? Yeah, that's right. They just want to fly. Petey the plane just wants to be up there. Other normal airplanes want to crash, <laughs> but Petey the airplane wants to fly. There was a famous episode in the late 60s called the Cornfield Bomber where a, where a, uh, an F-106 jet went out of control, so out of control that the pilot ejected and uh, and... In the process, the, the the force of the ejection seat and the change in the weight and dynamics of the airplane. Sure, equal and opposite reaction. And the all that. flight, uh, uh, the plane itself recovered from the flat spin 
and began to just fly on its own. Uh, the pilot then, you know, sitting underneath his parachute, like some of his his fellow pilots, like radioed him, like you better get back in it. It's the equi- it's, it's, flying now. it's the equivalent of getting out of the car to check your mail and watching it start to roll down the driveway. You're like, no, 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 no. You can imagine this guy's embarrassment, like. Oh, you couldn't control the airplane. Well, uh, good thing you got out of it. And this plane continued to fly and basically like landed itself. Landed a really just belly up landing in a cornfield. Planes and, not just planes don't just want to fly; they also want to eat corn. Uh, well, this plane like landed in the dirt with its motor still running and just sat there with the jet engine on, kind of slowly inching its way across a cornfield. And the plane was mostly undamaged. They fixed it and it flew. Wow. Continued to fly. One of the only examples I think of that. Uh, but so the this uh, this F6F, which was painted bright red and yellow and was meant, you know, to be visible as a target, uh, continued to fly, but it went into a kind of slow banking turn. Oh. And went, started to head back to land, uh, which you hate to see it became an enormous problem, right? Um, it was, uh, unbeknownst, it was, unbeknownst to all the people for whom it was actually a problem. Uh, yeah, it, this it, is, it was starting to become a problem. This is now flying for three, over LA. for three guys in a tower somewhere. And so some jets were scrambled from an air force base, a nearby air force base who were air force pilots and they were sent to shoot this airplane down. And there's a lot of competition between Air Force pilots and Navy pilots, and I'm sure that there was quite a bit of like a good-natured ribbing, like, oh, the Navy can't control their old airplane. Let's send the Air Force up to get it. We're speaking to a future audience from that rivalry is probably long dead, so you can finally say, and with no fear of reprisals, who actually has the superior pilots. Which I prefer. Yeah, in your opinion. Well, if you look at uh, if you look at the number of astronauts that were Navy pilots versus astronauts that were Air Force pilots, mm-hmm. there was a preponderance of Navy pilots within the air the early astronaut corps. Uh, but the Air Force was a was a new branch of the service. There was no Air Force prior to the end of World War II. It was the Army Air Corps up until that point. And so Air Force was new, and also Air Force was uh, strategic bomber focused. Uh, the, the, the idea the skill of fighters were were mostly navy. Were navy and marine pilots. Um, I mean, Air Force pilots then quickly became the great, uh, the great fighter duelists of uh, of later years. But the navy, you know, continues to be. I mean, Top Gun is about navy pilots. I've seen the Blue Angels. They're very good at making uh, a little lozenge shape, which then maybe turns into some kind of a star shape. Those are also Navy pilots. The Thunderbirds, yeah, the Thunderbirds are the Air Force, and you would you would assume that the Air Force would 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 really pour money into the Thunderbirds, but they don't. Do you know why? Because everyone just assumes the Blue Angels are Air Force. They're like, oh, I love the Air Force. I saw the Blue Angels. (laughs) Some Air Force generals like, well, so the Air Force sent up some. Uh, some F-89s, which were a, a jet-powered interceptor, uh, but they didn't have any uh, guided air-to-air missiles. All they had were these rocket pods under their aircraft, which were, as we've discussed, unguided rockets. And they had a hundred. Each plane had a hundred and four rockets in these big circular pods that they could fire. But the way they worked was they fired in clusters. And so the Air Force got up and started sort of, I mean, first they had to find this this relatively slow-moving, autopiloted, uh, you know, plane just sort of flying on its own, its own wherewithal. Do, do, do. Uh, and then they had to shoot it down. Well, the, the challenge was, as you're, as you're coming up behind an airplane, it presents a, a, a pretty small target. And also, this plane was in a constant turn. So to shoot it down from behind, I mean, as soon as you shot your uh, your unguided bullets, your rocket bullets, the the plane in front of you would just it's turn go in a different turn direction. Away. So they they uh, they t- uh, adopted the tactic that they were going to come sideways at it and shoot their rockets sort of broadside. Yeah, try and lean it in the Navy. And, and broadside it and shoot it down. Uh, and so the 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 pilots, one of whom was named. Einstein, Lieutenant Einstein, 
one of whom was uh, Lieutenant Herleman. Can you imagine all his subordinates just being like, nice shot, Einstein. Yeah, exactly. And he'd be like, hey. The rest of his life, he had to live this down. Uh, They fired their rockets in what was called the ripple effect, clusters of 42 rockets, and then 32 rockets in the second cluster, and then 70 rockets at the end, like, I have not been keeping track, but that's well over 100 rockets. That's 104 rockets, right? Or no, that's quite a bit more rockets. Well, let's see. How did they do that? 42, 32, and... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Not 70. 42, 30, and 30. Gotcha. So it's just over 100 rockets. Just over 100 rockets. Uh, So uh, Lieutenant Einstein fires his whole complement of rockets at this drone and misses. At one point, I think some of the rockets bounced off the... Uh, so the, it's, the, it's more of an equipment failure than, little, a, than uh, a pilot uh Well, no, I mean, failure? I think it was... They didn't, they didn't hit it directly and bounce off. They, like, skimmed off the wing oh. or, like, just sort of grazed the bottom and were sent a cattywampus. Like in Star, in Star Wars. I just impacted on the surface. Nah, red leader. And then Lieutenant Herleman came in behind him and also... Missed with 104 rockets. So they sent 208 unguided rockets at this relatively slow-moving Hellcat and missed entirely. But as you can imagine, these rockets did not disappear into thin air. Um, the Hellcat was flying over uh, over the Mojave Desert, the Antelope Valley in central uh, south-central California. And these rockets flew off completely willy-nilly. Was anybody worried about this? Had anybody, like, were the pilots aware that every time they missed the drone, they might be hitting a barn? This is, uh, this is one of the questions for the ages, right? <laughs> the Air Force did not expect to miss, presumably. A hundred, two hundred and whatever times? I mean, these, ro- these rockets were most effective as ground attack weapons. But I think because they were out over the largely uninhabited Antelope Valley and Mojave Desert, they assumed that these rockets would just sort of, I don't know what, the impact harmlessly in the desert. Uh, they didn't think this all the way through. And the rec- the the rockets did then land um, various places, peppering the earth. I need to know how funny I can find this. I need to know how many <laughs> civilians died. Like, maybe we should just lead with that on every entry. So here's, here's so you know. In the city of Newhall, California, uh, rockets landed in the town, uh, bounced off the ground. One rocket exploded, and the um, the shrapnel went into a woman's kitchen, uh, and some of the shrapnel actually ended up in her kitchen cupboards. But not in the woman? Not in the woman. Oh, good. No one died. Oh, okay. Uh, there were a couple of guys who, were, who had pulled their truck over to have lunch under a shady tree, and a rocket hit their truck and blew it up, but they were just sitting there eating sandwiches. That must have been a very confusing moment. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like, You're just like, having a sandwich. Do you, th- do you think the guy behind the wheel immediately like started the truck and just booked out of there? Because who knows where the next explosion is going to no, be? No, the truck is gone. The, truck's, oh, the truck oh, blew up. The, the truck's gone. Yeah, the truck, the truck was hit. I mean, it's one of those like, he hates these cans. You know, I, what could you say? Uh, Not again. One of the brush fires actually got uh, the fire burned to within 300 feet of something called the Burmite Powder Explosives Company. <laughs> the, not the BPEC. Yeah, the BPEC, uh, who were in the process of making bombs out in the <laughs> desert. And this, this rocket landed. What's the landed. safest place? <laughs> I mean, what are the chances? I almost wish uh, the Burmite powder factory had blown up just because what, an, what a much better story it would be. I would be mad that there was no video. I'm sure there's no video. In the end, um, there were no, there's no video at the time. You, right? You'd have to get your, your uh, Super 8 home camera out and get a cartridge in there and wind it up. Would the Air Force planes have had uh, no, no cameras not. in planes then? Prob- well, there would have been cameras in combat aircraft but they probably hadn't been loaded with film they didn't have time (laughs) scramble the pilots and the uh cameramen in the end like over a thousand acres of brush fire uh were started by these rockets that burned uh 
various places, did a considerable amount of damage in the desert. And uh, the Air Force pilots really had nothing to report except uh, to land and shrug as fires raged out of control. And in the end, our our heroic Grumman F6F, the runaway drone, just uh, flew on and ended up clipping some phone wires and uh, cartwheeling in the desert, just crashed just ineffe- ineffectually on its own. Nearby in the Mojave. Yeah. Uh, started no fires, presumably. And uh, they went out and repaired the repaired the phone wires and this was this was all sort of brought to light by a by a couple of guys whose hobby was to go out and find the wreckage of old airplanes that had crashed in the desert mm-hmm. and they heard about this story and went out and this is decades later this is in the 2000s oh so like at the time there were not even headlines about there were stories about oh, okay. it but it faded into obscurity yeah. you know almost immediately and uh, and they found the crash site where there was still wreckage all strewn all along the ground, <laughs> and they could look up and see in the phone wires that the that or the electrical wires that they were still the splices were still visible where the plane had cut through the wires and then it had been repaired by the by the lineman. It seems like what we'd learn here is that when things are spiraling out of control, you should really just. Sit tight. Sure. You leave, should not try to help. Leave it alone. Just don't do not do anything. Like the plane's probably just going to, you're just going to make things worse. Yeah. The plane wants to fly. And that concludes the Battle of Palmdale. Entry 104.EZ2047. Certificate number 31303 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, we hope that the plague of social media, so prevalent in our time, uh, has missed your century Completely, you probably don't even have whatever appendages you would need to type status updates into uh, Twittergram or whatever you have. Um, but uh, John and I were so devoted to the lofty principles of the Omnibus Project that we made sure that updates were frequently posted uh, at Omnibus Project on every social media network we could think of. We were uh, individually at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick on Twitter and in John's case on Instagram as well. We uh, were available to receive uh, electronic communication from uh, interested fellow scholars uh, at our email address, as it was called, mm. which was the omnibus project at gmail.com. Uh, we would receive physical artifacts. We would. Uh, from time to time. Do it. Send us some stuff. P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I have a I have a Canadian mini-comic that's been sitting in my car for weeks that I don't know if I ever showed you, but it's, uh, it was from the mailbox. It was a Canadian mini-comic? You know, we often have a, a... People will send us one thing, and you and I will sit and study it, and it's usually fairly obvious which of us wants it. And you tend to take a lot of the printed media and leave it at my house. <laughs> right, you you read it, you look at it, and then you're like, "It's true that I have the ultimate battle of Palmdale option. If I do nothing, this thing will sit at your house, and that's great. And you can be relatively assured that it will get archived at my house, right? If you ever like a year from now, if you're like, I'd like to, what about that lady that sent us those autobiographical uh, self published books? It gets, I'll, it gets, I'll have them. It gets archived in a very loose sense. Well, I mean... Your, 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 your team of archivists does not have to go into the stacks. I have a shelf of books that were written by my friends. I have a shelf... And that, you know, that is a fairly substantial bookshelf You now. have You have plenty of smart friends. It's, and you it's, have written... It's just, shocking that it hasn't rubbed off on you. Just, just you alone has written an entire <laughs> shelf of those books. Uh, and then I have a shelf of books that have been sent to me that have been endorsed or, or autographed, uh, like to John from friend. Um, I have, uh, now a shelf of books that people who listen to the omnibus have uh, sent us. Just books of, uh, 18th century train locomotive crashes. (laughs) That's right. Or whatever. From, uh, books that were sent to us from Israel. And, uh, and yeah, I think increasingly like that archive is, it's taking up a corner of my library. What a, what a valuable resource that will be someday. What a confusing resource that will be. (laughs) We'll put it in a time capsule along with these recordings. You probably found it when you, when you dug out this golden uh, cylinder, music box looking cylinder, you were like, why is there a book about Canadian locomotive crashes? Yeah. 
uh, you could uh, support the aims of the uh, Omnibus Project uh, financially as well. A, a little scratch, as we said. Do you like? Do you like when people call money a little scratch? Yeah, some clams, a few smackaroos. Uh, would be invaluable for uh, for helping the project and many generous donors. And John and I have been very touched by the outpouring of yes, support. Yes, we have. We have. Because we're speaking into the void here. We don't know what the show means to people. We don't even know if they're people. But apparently, if uh, if the Patreon donation mechanism exists in your chronal era, please navigate it to it now and uh, contribute at patreon.com slash omnibus project. Uh, many people who did and were enthusiastic uh, supporters of the show can be found at the Futurelings uh, group on Facebook and probably like-minded subreddits. There are a couple of subreddits. I leave it to you to... Are they to like-minded? Find... Yes. Because when I... I when I meet somebody great, I'm like, you know what I want? Like-minded people. Like-minded people. These, I think the Omnibus... There is no current place on the internet I know where people who hate the omnibus congregate. Uh, and would we would we promote it if there was? I think I, my tendency is to say, like, you know, both sides. <laughs> we need to teach the controversy. <laughs> Don't forget to go to facebook.com slash groups slash futurelings suck. <laughs> I guess whatever URL I say, somebody is going to start it. Anti-futurelings. There are definitely futurelings who go on the site to add addenda and often criticize one or the other of us. My favorite was the post the other day that said that they preferred one of your episodes to one of mine. And I was, again, rightfully like chuffed. Did you, offended, not chuffed. chuffed That's the opposite. Chuffed is the opposite. Chuffed is, chuffed is pleased. Uh, yeah, you replied... No, it wasn't. I something. said disagree. Disagree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, of course, agreed. I think that they were mad because the episode I did had generated a lot of fan response, whereas the episode that you did had was greeted with crickets. It was Quonset Huts. Yeah. People can post photos of a Quonset Hut. Right. And uh, they, they really liked it. They liked the Quonset Hut episode because they like to participate with photos of ones they've found. The high-minded. So really, the secret to Future League's success is just to make an episode called Manhole Covers. (laughs) And people will be like, oh boy, I see a manhole cover. I'm going to show the boys. Your episode was on some esoteric math. Which one was the one that they they compared? Yeah, it was on the Schwarzschild radius of a black hole. No, it was about droodles. Oh, droodles. They uh, liked it. A a barely corporeal thing that has not existed in physical form for 70 years. Much, much harder to photograph i'm gonna just gonna do vampires and yetis and marlo from now on things you, you can't take photographs of do not take photographs of marlo uh futurelings from our vantage point in your distant past we have no idea how long our civilization survived or whether or not the books and pamphlets we put into the um into the omnibus capsule are still readable. Maybe they've decomposed. They certainly some, have... Some foxing. They have foxing. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> You got heavy. You were like, I saw the F forming in your lips. What about the... What's it called when they make the little wormholes? Like, did you know that, like, bookworms will literally go through yeah. pages? And you can actually figure out which books pages are from. They often do this in case of manuscript theft. By following the tracks of, that the little worm has made, like, vertically through the pages oh, of the book. Oh, Really? So if somebody has taken a taking pages out or they've become unbound, people that have swiped uh, uh, maps or other illuminations from university libraries, you can actually prove which place it came from because of the wormholes. Well, we hope and pray that this catastrophe, where worms eat all of our manuscripts, uh, never comes. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final one. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the omnibus.